This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to a podcast of Rare Antiquities, episode 23. On today's show, we are going to discuss and analyze Robert Wise's 1971 science fiction film, The Andromeda Strain, or as I incorrectly pronounced last time, The Andromeda Strain. (laughs) (laughs) Alameda. (laughs) Nucleo vessels. My name is Harry, and I'll be your host for today's show. And I am your co-host. My name is Jeff. So, Jeff. You had previously mentioned you had seen this film before, and this is a film adaptation of Michael Crichton's novel of the same name. Can you give me any early thoughts and memories of watching this movie from before, and did you by chance ever read the novel? I can give you some, yeah. When I, when I saw the film, watching it for the episode here, it was not familiar, so I think I must have misspoken. thought I had seen it, but it, it well, if I did, it didn't, didn't stick, so I hadn't, I didn't have much memory watching it here. I have read the novel. I read the novel many years ago when I was in uh, junior high school. So mid-90s, I was around uh, grade eight, I think. And just to, you know, give you a little background, somebody had introduced me to Jurassic Park, obviously Michael Crichton's most uh, famous <laughs> novel. And you know, it was a couple of years after it had been published. And I was like, I was kind of mad that this book existed and nobody fucking told me that there was this book out there about genetically engineered dinosaurs, you know, like any <laughs> self-respecting, you know, 12 year old, 13 year old kid, like dinosaurs are a pretty big deal. So I, uh, I devoured Jurassic Park probably like 10 times. I read it over and over and over again. And this was probably about a year before the film was released. And then I started to read up on all of, not all of Michael Crichton's novels, but a good portion of them in the Andromeda Strain was was one of the ones that I came to over the next few years. So yeah, I read it probably in the mid to late 90s, and I did attempt to watch the 2008 miniseries, also based on the novel. But Which that I think is, you had mentioned was a piece of shit. Yeah, it's best left buried six levels deep like the <laughs> facility in the film. Or maybe just go or, out, or go out with the Atari cartridges in the middle of the desert. Yeah, well, they dug those up, and we don't want anybody to find the, <laughs> the yeah, ED that ones, is, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I, I'm glad that you know maybe you'll get a fresh take on this. But did you remember a lot of the novel, like this one? Uh, once, not at first. I'd actually gone looking for it to see if I still had my copy of it, just to do a quick scan of it to refresh my memory. But I don't think I have it anymore. But once I watched the film, I did recall a lot of, if not the specifics of the novel, the general tone and prose style of the novel as I watched the movie. So definitely something we can discuss if you want to get into that. Yeah, maybe we can, can, you can maybe bring up some points later in the movie if you want. I know a couple of changes, but from what I know, it's a pretty faithful adaptation from novel to the the big screen. So this movie was directed by Robert Wise, whom we had previously mentioned briefly before in our Star Trek podcast. And while Wise passed away in 2005, 
I find that he really isn't all that mentioned on lists of best directors that you always hear about, you know, along the likes of Spielberg, Kubrick, Coppola, Scorsese, and those kind of guys. Wise was a pretty renowned director. I mean, he did win Academy Awards as Best Director for West Side Story and The Sound of Music. He was also nominated for Academy and other awards on many of his other projects. And and what's unique about him is that he's dipped his hands into every genre of a film as a director, science fiction, musicals, westerns, noir films, war films, horrors, and dramas. And Scorsese himself is called wise and an actual artist, not just uh, an artisan. You know, in addition to his directorial work, uh, he was president of the Directors Guild. He was president of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. He sat on the board of trustees for the AFI, the American Film Institute, and he was a leading member of the National Council of Arts and Science. And fittingly for us geeks, his actual last project before he died was actually overseeing the director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture, in which he provided commentary for and created those new optical effects and sound mix. And the reason why I bring some of this up here, Jeff, is be you know for the average film goer you don't really hear his name come up in a lot of conversations but from my research I mean I always loved him from Star Trek the motion picture and I felt he you know and I've seen a couple of his other pictures and the sound of music I knew he directed that as well but the man really is a legend in many aspects I mean he, he his earlier work too I mean he was a film editor on Citizen Kane so yeah. what, what are your thoughts here well I can only agree he's he's a legend I mean how else how else do you describe it I, I haven't seen a lot of his films but the filmography speaks for itself. I, th- I mean, I mean I'm, I'm a big, big fan of Star Trek The Motion Picture. I think it's extremely underrated film. Yeah, likewise. Uh, as both as a film and even in, within the Star Trek fandom, it's, I'd say it's uh, criminally underappreciated. I think my favorite film of his is actually The Day the Earth Stood Still. It's a science fiction classic. Not much more to be said about Robert Wise. I mean, he's, you know, fantastic He's a legend does not get the accolades that some of the other of his contemporaries do get. That's for sure. That's a bit of a shame, in my opinion. Yeah, because, you know, I, I didn't know half of the works that he has been involved in until I did the research for this podcast and just kind of blew me away. Because, yeah, as I said, you don't really hear a lot talked about him, but very respected man in the industry. And I think from what I mentioned before, just his involvement in everything, he was very renowned. And I, I think he got the respect from his peers, but not the average film goer, unfortunately. No, he didn't quite, maybe he didn't quite break through into the upper echelon mainstream. I mean, things were a bit different for directors too in those times, right? During the 40s and 50s, the director of the film was not as, didn't have the celebrity that directors have today. You know, often the producer was, the producer's name was the one that sort of headlined the film and and the director was basically the guy who was pointing the camera, you know. So, you know, definitely a little bit different in his time, but he did make his mark. So, you know, his, uh, yeah, you and I know him, so that's obviously good enough, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's good for, good enough for the podcast. So, so you know, we, we stake the claim that we know of the man and he's awesome. <laughs> yeah. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, you heard it here. Okay. So how about we get into the plot summary here? Let's do it. All right. So two crewmen of the U.S. government are sent to retrieve a satellite that has returned and fallen in the town of Piedmont, New Mexico. As they arrive, they find the town empty with dead bodies everywhere, and then suddenly they pass away. The U.S. government and Army generals then initiate Project Wildfire, code name for suspected extraterrestrial pathogens' presence 
its retrieval, and its analysis. They bring about four scientists and doctors, Dr. Jeremy Stone, Dr. Mark Hall, Dr. Charles Dutton, and Dr. Ruth Levitt to investigate. Dr. Stone and Hall are sent into the town wearing hazmat suits. There they retrieve the satellite and find two survivors, a baby and a sick old man. Doctors Dutton and Levitt meet up with Dr. Stone and Hall at his top secret underground laboratory in Nevada where they all go through several decontamination procedures. Hall is also informed that he will be responsible for aborting nuclear self-destruction of the facility and surrounding area in case of an outbreak, and is given a key to disarm the nuclear device. In fact, Dr. Stone already has recommended nuclear destruction of Piedmont to eliminate chances of anything spreading further, but the president decided to wait for 48 hours before making the call. The team begins their experiments and analyzes or an analysis of the agent inside the satellite, as well as tests on the baby and old man. What is different about these two individuals that allowed them to survive? The team soon confirms that the pathogen is transmitted by air, kills lab animals instantly, and is too large to be a virus. They finally discover a greenish throbbing mass on a small piece of meteorite on the satellite, and they codename it Andromeda. Hall soon determines that the old man has abnormally acidic blood from drinking sterno to re uh, relieve his stomach ulcer pains, but there are still no anomalies found in the baby. Further study finds that Andromeda is a life form of similar chemical composition to that of Earth life, but it lacks amino acids, enzymes, and proteins. Later, they deduce that Andromeda's crystalline structure will allow it to convert energy to mass and vice versa. It can consume any resource without waste. This, of course, leads to the conclusion that a nuclear explosion would provide Andromeda with enough energy to expand and produce a super colony in a single day. They immediately advise the president to not bomb Piedmont. After finding out that Wildfire was a project created for the sole purpose of finding such a pathogen and it being used in germ warfare, Andromeda mutates and escapes the containment room to where Dutton is working. Hall realizes that Andromeda thrives in a narrow pH range, and the baby's rapid breathing kept its blood alkaline, which, which means high pH, and that the old man was suffering from acidosis, which is low blood pH. And this is how they survive. Hall instructs Dutton to rapidly breathe in the trapped room so he can survive. But then he ob observes a rat, which is in good health beside Dutton, which means that Andromeda has mutated and has become benign to terrestrial life. However, Andromeda's mutation has now started to deteriorate the lab, which has triggered the facility's nuclear destruction countdown. Hall races against the clock to reach a substation with the key, but he has to avoid automated lasers, which are intended to kill escaped lab animals. He has hit with lasers several times, but he manages to disable the bomb before passing out. The military then releases sil a silver iodide near the clouds over the desert, which will stimulate rain in the hopes that it will wash the organism to the ocean, where the alkalinity of the ocean will eventually destroy it. The film ends with a close-up of Andromeda. It seemingly mutates again. The end. So, Jeff, just thoughts just right on that synopsis and, you know, just when you hear about it, is this something that you think will is very interesting? Does it entice you? Does it whet your appetite? What do you think? Not really. And not to speak to your skill of writing the, the plot synopsis, but... It, there's not a whole lot, you know, if you're reading the back of the Blu-ray cover to uh, to compel you here. So, you know, one would hope that there is some more compelling details just within the film itself to bring you along. But uh, just sort of the surface level, not a huge compelling narrative there just to, to draw one in, I, I don't think. Mm. Okay, so before we get into any trivia... Uh, I do want to, again, mention we are dealing with an adaptation of a Michael Crichton novel of the, of the same name. I believe that the only other podcast review that we've previously dealt with a film adaptation of a novel was The Mosquito Coast. I don't think any other one was adapted from an original novel. 
What are your thoughts about film adaptations of novels? They are, of course, good ideas to generate film and interesting stories because many most interesting stories do come from novella and fiction, but they often do lead to mixed results. I mean, the main problem is you can't fit every single detail and character moment in a novel into a two-hour movie. So, of course, there are some commercial successes and some failures. Some good successes one could look at as Lord of the Rings, Jaws, Jurassic Park, as you mentioned, Harry Potter, and so on, which are more on the mainstream side. But I wanted to ask you in general, what are your thoughts about these kind of adaptations and which ones do you think really have worked out or not, in your opinion? Any any favorites that stand out and also ones that you really have hated as films? Oof, uh, that is a very layered question or has layered answers. I have very... I have very passionate and specific opinions on on this topic, so I'm just going to go for it, and, and if you want me to just shut the fuck up so we can get on with it. <laughs> we can spend a few minutes on it, but yeah, yeah. just start. Go ahead. Well, just uh, to, to answer your question, as far as favorites go, just off the top of my head, as far as very successful adaptations go, Lord of the Rings comes to, the, comes to mind. I know you're not a huge fan. I think that's extremely successful. I'm a fan of those films, and I think that the films surpass the novels in many ways uh, Jurassic well, let Park. me let me just let me just jump in and, and state that I think they're wonderful films the direction and the monstrous task of Peter Jackson to get that film adapted for the big screen yeah based on the subject matter right yeah so yeah. that was a feat and he he accomplished that and he deserves all the credit in the world and I loved actually the first movie I felt the next two were really bland but that's that's a separate podcast. Yeah, no, that and that's fair enough. But I think that they, I think they surpass the novels, and I can get into if how that's even possible. Jurassic Park, I think, also just because we were talking about it, was also a very successful adaptation. You know, thinking of uh, there, there's so many uh, as far as ones that have that have failed poorly, as far as novels that were really really good that that did not do so well on the big screen. I can't really think of too many right now. Uh, I think most, I don't know, you, you know, anytime you sit in a movie theater and, and you're, you know, you're watching a movie and, and it's based on a book before the movie starts, you're going to hear somebody complaining about it or Harry Potter was a pretty successful adaptation. I'm not a big fan of the novels. I'm not a big fan of the movies. They're, they're good, but I think they were successful in, in what they were trying to capture. Just as, you know, a couple words on, you know, conceptually about how this works is, People who are fans of a particular novel and then it gets adapted to the screen. So often you hear people will say, well, the book was better. Well, the book was better. And I don't think that that is a fair criticism or a very insightful one either. It's easy to compare the two on the surface because the narrative structure of a novel and of a film are very, very similar. On the surface, many things cross over. The narrative arc, oftentimes there's acts in a novel you have your characters and again the the narrative structure is very similar but they're very very different mediums and you you can't compare them you know that it's not apples to apples it, it, it is an apples to oranges scenario so you can't say that the movie was better than the book or the book was better than the movie because they're they're too different to say that one's better than the other you might enjoy one over the other and they might have done a shit job with the adaptation and the movie sucks. Or I can't think of a case where this has happened where you might have a shitty book and a good movie. But it's just... I might have an example of that for you, but yeah, finish your thought. Well, no, I was just going to say, it's too easy to say, ah, the book was better. Nah, you know what? I call bullshit on that. 
the two different you, you the it's necessary to separate the two you know in the in you know from the period of 2001 to 2012 or 13 when harry potter was the you know most gigantic phenomenon on planet earth seven huge children's novels that every adult was reading for some reason and then the movies and then people complained well they left this out of the movie and they left this out of the movie and they left this out of the movie well the, you know when the books ended up being at one point like 700 pages long like you can't have a movie that's 12 hours and in, in runtime you know you need to make decisions and you need to cut things like even the bible's been edited it, so nothing's sacred and and i i feel it's a, it's a short-sighted criticism so yes i'm i'm fine when you want to adapt novels to film or or to tv there's been some good successes there and if you're a fan of that novel you just gotta you gotta let it go when you want to watch the film and if it doesn't live up hey that's them's the breaks go back and read the novel that's fine anyway that's my rant on it i generically agree with you i mean it's hard to compare because as i said as you you had said and i'd mentioned before when you have a massive novel you have to cut things out to fit it into a two-hour time slot right so you will lose a lot of things and then a lot of there's a lot of implied moments as you even though it may not be on the paper as you read something in a, in a novel you're able to slowly interpret situations and dive into the characters even when the words aren't there as you're mm-hmm. reading along and you have a, and because of the fast pace visual medium of movies you sometimes really can't the movie doesn't stop to allow you to think and absorb some of these moments because you're going straight to a scene to a scene to a scene so normally i would say that novels are better than their film adaptations in almost every way even though i agree with you you really can't hit apples to apples i think there's a couple of notable exceptions for me the most obvious one mainly because it's so mainstream popular and it's such a great movie as we talked about is Jaws because there's there's a lot of there's some weird stuff in Jaws the novel that really hurts the story and it plays out a lot more effectively in in the movie and mm. this is like the relationship like I don't even know if you've read, you've read Jaws I have never read the novel no so do you know that Hooper had an affair with Brody's wife I did not know that interesting so very fucked up it's it's stupid <laughs> and the way Quint dies is a this kind of works, but I think it's more satisfying in the in the movie. The payoff when the shark dies is in the in the novel. The shark is rushing towards Brody, and mm-hmm. Quint wasn't eaten. He his foot got tangled in all of those barrel drums with the rope, and he got dragged. And he just dropped drowns from being in the water and being dragged. The shark doesn't mm-hmm. eat him. But fi- remember how he has that line that you know three barrels. He's got he can't stay. You can't stay down with three barrels. Yeah. Well, Quint was the final straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, Him being dragged. So as the shark is rushing towards Brody, he, he has, I guess the shark has a heart attack because the weight was, the dragging weight was too much for him. Dies right before he gets to Brody. It's kind of interesting that way. And, and the way, if you could film it interesting, interestingly enough, then it might've worked. But I think the payoff is so much more better in the movie, of course. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So these are the kind of things like that. I mean, there's other ones that we talked, you talked about Harry Potter. I think that was a very successful adaptation and I'm not going to bash it because it was meant for children and something to get children to read is all the more better. Personally for me, because I'm a huge fan of, um, I grew up with the Rambo franchise. I think it's an actual really good, ad, uh, First Blood's a really good film adaptation, a direct one with some minor changes. But I think aside from Jaws and Harry Potter and things like Jurassic Park and some Stephen King ones and other Michael Crichton ones, and there, there's so many out there. I also like some more stories that, uh, film adaptations that more 
inspirational from books that they make a lot of changes. So another one could be Total Recall, which is a loose adaptation mm-hmm. of Philip K. Dick's story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, Yeah. right? So I think they kind of reworked a lot of it, but there was a lot of it that stays the same. Concepts are there, but the movie is something else a little bit. And I think it really worked out well. And we also have a lot of terrible film adaptations. You know, the recent one, you could, you talked a really good one, Lord of the Rings. Well, I could tell you another bad one is The Hobbit, because I read The Hobbit oh. when I was little, and not just the, the idea of the movie being stretched out so much, but just it didn't do any of it justice anyways. No, that that's a really good example of where they really, really messed up, because it's a very simple, joyful tale. I mean, my mom used to read me The Hobbit like it's a bedtime story when I was mm-hmm. A small child, and I don't want to say fun, but it the light fantasy nature of it is so great, and and it's just a plotting mess. The film, the the three, how they made it three films, Jesus, I don't know, but it's yeah, it's a just a bore. That's a really good example of going the complete opposite direction. I mean, that's just insultingly bad. That's a cash grab, and it's yeah. a real shame. It's a yeah. real shame. Let's. I'll just hit you with some trivia, and then we can get into the movie. So this film was released in 1971. It was made for 6.5 million, and the film made over 12 million in North America at the time, and earned another 8 million in movie rentals. So it was a moderate success for its time. This is one of the first films to use advanced computerized or optical visual effects with work done by Douglas Trumbull. Now. You might have heard of Trumbull's name. He's well known in the industry for visual effects work. Uh, he worked on Kubrick's 2001. He continued his F- uh, FX work on Star Trek The Motion Picture, of course, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Blade Runner, to name a few of his more notable work. Interestingly, he turned down Star Wars because <laughs> he was a little busy, but uh, <laughs> he could have been on that one. Poor um, bastard. But the interesting thing is here, he is not just effects work, he's also kind of worked a little bit hand in hand with some of the conceptual uh, set design as well. And you can see a lot of Star Trek, the motion picture, the beginnings of that in this movie. You know, those two did both. And I'm sure you had that feeling when you got onto the Wildfire Lab set. So it felt like an offshoot or an early offshoot of what uh, the motion picture was going to be. So uh, the Wildfire Lab was actually one of the most expensive sets ever built at the time. It cost 300000 which seems small for us, but it was very expensive for them. And it was 70 feet deep by 30 feet wide on a soundstage. It's interesting that the novel was released in 1969, and the rights for this film was immediately snatched up as the movie was shot in 1970 and then released in 1971. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. I found wow. that interesting because uh, you don't really hear about, you know, as soon as a novel's, you know, released, it's like, oh, let's make it into a movie immediately, right? So it's usually a few years and you, you let it build momentum. Um, well, especially for, a no- especially for a, a novelist at this point who was not... Uh, a, a sure bet. A sure. Yeah. He wasn't famous. This was his first. It wasn't his first novel, but this is the first novel he published under his own name. So he was not a known commodity yeah. at all. And, and I don't know the history, like who wanted to really make this film, but I really wouldn't be surprised if it was Robert Wise who probably read the read the novel and said, "Let's do this." And yeah, that, that, that very well could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of feel this is something really up more of his alley and. He's the one who probably spearheaded the project anyways. So another uh, interesting thing is the computer error at the end is 601 due to the overload while it's trying, trying to analyze and simulate Andromeda's growth and mutation. 
The error number is a reference to the computer overload error of 1202, which is exactly double of 601, which actually occurred during the first lunar descent on their computers. It couldn't simulate, it just overloaded. So a nice little throwback there. Yeah, and then the, the four lead actors are fairly non-recognizable stars, and we can talk about how well that worked out or not as we go through the movie. The only one, and you might get a kick out of this, the only one I did recognize when I watched this was James Olsen, who played Dr. Hall, and he was, if you recall, he was General Kirby in Arnie's Commando. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from that, none of these guys, I mean, they didn't do a lot of other, a lot of work. I'm, you know, I'm probably a lot of small credits from what I saw. I skimmed through a couple of them, but no, not much, not much else. And they've been out of the, out of the work for a while. So any thoughts on the, on the trivia here, Jeff? Well, I guess we can talk about the cast sort of as we, as we go through how, or the lack of, of recognizable actors, I, I thought was I don't know, deliver I don't know if it was a deliberate choice or or not, but I thought it served the film quite well. Like what you were saying there about the quick adaptation of the novel into into a film is interesting because that's that's actually been the case on on a number of Michael Crichton's novels, but much later in his career when he was a very bankable writer, when you you just his his name would sell a film. Mm-hmm. You know, R- Rising Sun's a good example where it was made into a film the same year that, oh, that the novel was published. I, I, I remember. I remember that movie. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't, I don't remember Connery. how it ended. Yeah, it was Connery, Snipes, and I remember <laughs> a lot of nudity. That's what I remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I kind of like that movie, as terrible as it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a good one to do one day. Yeah, it might be. It might be. Any other thoughts? Mm, nope. Let's get into it. All right. So I just actually wanted to, as this movie opens, it goes straight into the title card and the, and the credits. And it's kind of like a cool, retro, kind of spooky opening, very ominous. The music here is very sharp and techy, tech sounding, kind of appropriate. And I did notice like there got some scientific support from Caltech and the Jet Propulsion lab- Laboratory. Yeah. What did you think of these credits? And just the thought that they actually got a lot of support, a lot of, you know, a lot of backup cred from well-known um, institutions. Yeah, I think that that works well. I mean, this obviously predates our lifetime, but this is coming off of, this is only a few years removed from the moon landing, the first moon landing. And, you know, so they can use these credits, I guess, if you will, to lend some credibility to what's going to be happening in the storyline here. That helps, you know, you talked about how ominous sort of the music was and the, you know, the title card. When you throw in those credentials for a movie like this, it it makes it a bit scary. I mean, you're going, you know, like I say, it's only a couple years removed from the moon landing. You're going out, we're going out into the unknown for the first time. A very effective use here, I think, to help, you know, build the dread, build, build that, 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 that feeling of ominousness. And so, I agree. And, and cool. an interesting note is they pulled, um... Well, I wouldn't say because they kind of originated this, if it is original here. But they did a, a Blair Witch kind of thing where they kind of said, you know, this mm. faux, fake kind of like warning. Like this this actually kind of happened and it's kind of like a, the events you see has actually happened and it's a documentary. Yeah, I like that. I like yeah, that. Yeah, and then you, get, then you get the scientific support from Caltech and this and I agree with you. It automatically establishes the tension, the mood, the credit, and it gives some credibility to the film right here. 
And that's that's a very good point you you brought up, Jeff. Something I didn't think about is that that yeah, was only a few years after the moon landing. So you know, this is really a hot topic. It's on everybody's mind: space and exploration. And when you start getting movies like this now again, where you reestablish that fear of the unknown, it's very effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the movie opens uh, with obviously the military observing that town in the middle of the desert, Piedmont. They're looking for their crash satellite that has returned to Earth. And this couple guys go in there after talking to an Air Force base and they see a bunch of bodies. You hear them over the radio as they're being monitored by the, the military back at the base. And you just hear them say, say they see a bunch of bodies and then they scream. Apparently, so something bad has happened to them. So the Air Force sends aircraft in for a a jet to make some surveillance passes. And he sees all and video records all the bodies all over the town. So Army obviously declares a state of emergency. And this major dad guy, you know, he calls in a secret code called uh, wildfire wildfire alert. And and that's, as we come to know, is a code for potential extraterrestrial organism, which has come back with the satellite. So what did you think of this established opening here? Yeah, I think it's a it's a good it's a pretty good opening i mean we don't get we don't get a lot of exposition they just they're just kind of going about their they're going about their business mm-hmm. what i like about movies of this era is that there isn't a whole bunch of exposition we kind of get started and we just sort of go and we don't have characters walking down hallways talking to each other about they're telling each other about what's going on and about their feelings and their conflicts and bringing everything to the surface i find that you know such an annoying feature of modern day storytelling it's minimalist. You know, it's kind of like they put the camera down and these guys are just going about doing their jobs. You know, it doesn't do a whole lot more than that, but it's sort of a, a workmanlike way of going about business. I think that's an effective way of opening a film. We just we kind of just get into it. Nobody's nobody's thoughts and feelings are being verbalized. We just get and we, you know, we get it and we go. I agree with you. For the most part, I love that the fact is, you know, we just get into it, we go, there's no exposition, you know, it's refreshing, especially considering today's mainstream movies, they're always it's too layered with too much exposition. But what immediately starts drawing me out is some of the acting. Mm. And this is, I think is going to tell you is going to be a recurring problem for me throughout this movie. And whether it was deliberately done or not, I, I just, I hate the fact that, you know, it is something so simple can take me out of a movie. And I don't know why that is. All these D players here are just terrible. And I don't mind that if it's just in a few scenes, but then we'll talk about it as we go forward. But I agree with you. The exposition is minimal and that and that is very refreshing. Um, so we get some scenes here then of the army after wildfire has been launched. Uh, the army's then collecting all the SMEs or the subject matter experts, which are the scientists and the doctors here. And, you know, you take a look at especially, you know, Dr. Jeremy Stone. He's kind of like the Nobel laureate leader. And, you know, he's the first one that gets called. And what, what did you think of just let's just group them all in? What did you think of all their intros? You get a small glimpse of their lives and families and jobs. Are these good intros or effective? Were they even necessary considering how the rest of the movie plays out? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so our our introduction to as uh, a Doctor Stone that that he's the main guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Where he's having the party at his house made me think of Mad Men for for some reason. And I know that uh, obviously this is several several decades ago, and, and this is probably a thing people do. But I, I found it a little bit humorous. 
this just to see this sort of very formal party at somebody's house. Everybody's wearing a, a suit and a tie and everything. So that that his particular introduction, I thought, was a little silly. The other ones were fine. I, I didn't mind the introduction of Doctor Levitt. I thought her. I thought her introduction was was fine. Was any of this necessary? I don't know. I think it is because it saves us from exposition maybe later on in the film where they all have to introduce each other or or themselves to each other and and give the backstories. We get a we get a quick character hit from each of them. This is actually something that we would definitely see in a modern day film if we were putting together an ensemble. So it's it's okay. What I did like and I and I'll bring it up now. We kind of mentioned it earlier. Uh, the lack of, of very recognizable players. I had no idea who any one of these people, any one of these actors were. I had no idea, and that that's the one thing. The second thing is, you know, if you made this today and they did remake it again in two thousand and eight, you'd make them all young and hot, right? Yeah, young, hot. You know. They have a lot of problems. You'd have a couple of them have a lot of problems. You spend about yeah. 20 minutes dealing with those problems. Will Smith would be one of them, and he'd have a daughter or a son, yeah. probably played by his real life unwanted daughter and son. And, you know, he'd have to yeah. have a, a 10, 15 minute relationship with each of them, and then probably another five minutes with his wife. Uh, oh, absolutely. It's, it's yeah. Like Kate, Kate yeah. Morrow would be playing Dr. Levitt, and she'd have like a low cut tank top but she'd still be kind of frumpy as a scientist but she'd still be super hot and shit and you know what i'm glad like these they look like four scientists Mm -hmm. just you know they're they're a little older they're established they don't go to the gym five days a week they look like normal regular people i really appreciated you know that Uh, you know the quality of performances we could talk about as we go along but uh, that was the first thing that struck me that's a fair and it's a good but going back to establishing who they are i mean you're talking a lot about a lot of their qualities that you get to know or would be present if we skipped these scenes i felt that these intro scenes like with the family or at their jobs was completely unnecessary i think you could have just had dr stone and dr hall just go to the town you see dr hill uh, dr uh, dutton and uh, dr levitt just go towards the as we'll talk about the base itself and that's our introduction to them that's good enough because they don't talk about their families or anything any of their backgrounds really later and you could still have that discussion about the odd man hypothesis which is the one guy who is the only guy who does no you know family or no there'd be no restrictions he'd he'd be the one who could make the tough rational decision and that's why Mm -hmm. dr hall's given the the abort key for the nuclear countdown because he can make the rational decision he doesn't have a family to save so you could still establish that you know that dr stone had a family or other people have problems and 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 i'll get into like dr i mean you know you'll come to understand about dr levitt's side story about her epilepsy which i found was just useless so I think the bulk bulk of this movie really sticks straightforward to what I'm going to be calling the scientific method, which it is the scientific method is pretty, this is the scientific method, the movie, <laughs> right? It, it is absolutely, that is absolutely the case. I totally agree with you. So I find it completely out of place and I wish that they, this movie's two hours. I think we could have shaved off five, 10 minutes of the movie and gotten straight to the base yeah, straight to the town, straight to the base, and just ignore all of the collection of these people. Because I guess they're trying to say it humanizes per certain people, so the audience can get attached. But there's no real, there's not a lot happening in this movie except for the analysis of the organism. So I really don't understand why we bothered going there. But anyways, enough about that. I thought it was unwarranted and unnecessary. 
So as Dr. Stone and Hall visit the town there in hazmat suits and as they search, I really liked some of the direction here. They had some nice wide shots, establishes the scope of the town, the practical effects, whether this is a real town or it was built for the movie, the isolation, the creepiness, ominous feeling. And we also started getting that split screen comic book like panels mm. of as they're peeking into the the buildings and through the windows, you get dead bodies and faces of people. I think you get kids too. You get animals. You get, it's really, they don't stop short and they don't pull punches. You see dead kids, you see dead dogs, and you see people's warped faces as they're dead. And I really like these scenes. It, again, sets the tone and I found it really unique for the time, especially that comic book-like panel way of showing things. And what are your thoughts about that? I mean, this sequence here and there in the town is my favorite part of the film. And yeah, this the split-screen panels, very neat. I, I like it. You don't see it very often. You see it here and there. Ang Lee's Hulk comes yeah, I, was, to mind. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> that's that's one an obvious one you can pull up, yeah. Maybe maybe not the best example, but I, I like uh, that dial he brought to it. It's just the, they're too bad the movie sucks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That that could be a whole series, Ang Lee's Hulk, but <laughs> <laughs> a series of critical podcasts, Ang Lee's Hulk. Sure. <laughs> Sure, our our devoted audience wants to listen to that one. Fuck, but this is a this is a very this is a great overall sequence here. The town, the, the split screen is very fascinating, and I, I completely agree. We're not shying away from showing the you know the animals, the kids, and the you know it looks good. It's creepy. It's ominous. It's it's played well. It's again like Robert Wise has sort of a minimalist stylistic. Well, style, minimalist style, and and it serves him very well in in this uh, in this scene here. Thinks it works well because we're getting we don't know what's going on, and we're getting kind of creeped out because we don't know what's going on. But obviously, it's bad. Yeah, I did find I agree with you, but I just find it funny that they finish these you know comic book uh, split screen type shots with the dead naked girl, and they zoom in on her tits. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I hey, have, it's Hollywood, man. <laughs> Gotta have tits. It's Hollywood. So as they uh, continue exploring the town, they find uh, the satellite, which was opened in the doctor's office. And honestly, doctor's dead. And they found uh, the hungry baby and the sick old man. And, you know, when they cut open the doctor's wrist, uh, wrist they found that all of his blood had turned into powder. So a complete blood clot. And because of this, they leave Dr. Stone suggests nuking the town. And, and then you, you, get, you start to see now some of the relationships and the back and forth between the White House situation room and, and the president's advisors and, and the scientists and you know the president president doesn't want to nuke nuke the town right away despite the science uh, dr stone's recommendation but i did like the fact that now you're starting to get into that back and forth between the science and the politics mix right you see mm -hmm. the wheels turn this is crisis management without dumbing things down and this will continue in a few other scenes throughout the movie with the exception of the terrible acting here and i think that these advisors are the worst of the bunch in the movie, I did like the concept of these scenes. Uh, what What are your thoughts? I like the concept of the scenes. The acting doesn't bother me so much here, but it's pretty underwritten. There isn't a whole lot for an actor to to grab onto. It's a situation where you know, say the lines because we need to. You know, we're concerned about. They're concerned about the plot, right? That that's where the the script is focused on the plot. The story is focused on the plot. So these guys are just reading lines in order to service the plot. So unfortunately, they're not given a whole lot to work with. Yeah, it's not great performance, but yeah, I can't squeeze water out of a stone either. So I just, as I, but these were the, supposed to be what I was hoping was going to be a more 
deeper level of a relationship between for crisis management that yeah. you sometimes I get it's funny you get some more of that in mainstream movies where you those disaster movies like Armageddon or Deep Impact or whatever some of those relationships a little bit more in detail I was surprised as we move forward how little we got on the other side and I was hoping like the political side and I thought I think that this movie could have benefited more from those relationships and seeing how things are being dealt on the other side here instead of just only focusing like 99% of the time on the scientists. But, and I was hoping for more of that while we did get a few scenes, it, it did leave me wanting a lot more. Anyways, let's move on. Uh, next we see Dutton and doctors Dutton and Levitt go to another isolated area in the desert where wildfires bases and disguised as an a- agricultural farm. Uh, then all of a sudden bond meets star Wars episode four, <laughs> the secret elevator trope is followed by cheap graphics which I love of the elevator going down deep into the ground and I, I was like chuckling because it reminded me of that cheap lazy Death Star plan graphic from A New Hope yeah yeah totally <laughs> that's the first thing I thought I love the elevator though I thought that was I thought that was great yeah it actually reminded me in so many Bond films as well I mean you, you I, the one that comes off the top of my head is Thunderball very similar where the guy goes Spectre agent goes right into kind of like a little office room and then it just goes down it's all steely and very similar and then you know, you even get that in what uh, Dark Knight Rises and so many other movies. You get these little things, and it's just a trope. Yeah. But, but now we're starting to get some neat scenes because now they got they're in the wildfire base and, and they're starting to go through the many layers of decontamination. And so I have some questions for you here. But let me first just say this: first, what did you just in general think of the decontamination process? And you know, it's very long. It felt really real. And the stages of it made complete sense. And you could also comment on on the sets you see here. And I found it interesting because like as they're going down and down and down towards where the contagion is, it's like, you know, thematically, they're just going more towards hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I found this, I found that kind of interesting. So what did you think about that? I thought the set design was excellent. You're right. You get the seeds of Star Trek, the motion picture here. And yeah, I thought it was very realistic. I thought it was a very good choice. I really like the computer graphics where they detail the the station. I'm, I was kind of surprised that they... And that actually feels a little bit like um, episode four as well. Yeah, it kind of does. That feel. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was really cool. I, and when I was watching it, I what I thought was, you know, this is very, it feels very authentic. I have no idea if that's exactly what the protocol would be, but it felt very authentic and it's very, you know, it's very contrary to what, you know, we would expect to see in a film where they would generally cut this kind of stuff out or, or streamline it or something. And they didn't. They kind of made us go through the same slog as the character's had to go through. I kind of like that when the style matches the form or the content of the of the film, right? The the characters are going through the slog, so we're kind of going through it with them. So I thought that was a good choice from a storytelling perspective. I did like these scenes and the stages of it felt real. So I'm not I have one other question for you for this is out of all the decontamination processes, which one did you find the most interesting and which one did you would you want to go through? <laughs> <laughs> I want the one where I get a hot girl rubbing biogel all over me. Oh, Oh. that was Star Trek Enterprise. Sorry. Um, (laughs) I I mean, I can't recall exactly all of them, but I guess like my favorite sequence of this here wasn't exactly a decontamination process was when they're eating and it's just like all this bland food. Right. And then the one guy says like, well, you're not even going to get food like this good on level six or whatever. And they go, (laughs) they go from there. So that was good. What about you? No, I like the, 
Xenon light one with the rhinestone helmet because it'll give insight into how Michael Jackson lived his life in his personal house. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. full body wax all in one go. I mean, I, but on a serious note, I think that actually was kind of neat how all the layers of your epidermis kind of just kind of like was just shaved off and it was just left in a yeah. fine layer of dust. And that was really cool. I liked that scene. So then we get some scenes after the decontamination process is like several hours worth of them going through that. So they each retire to their quarters and you see each of them dreaming and they each have some backstory of their characters and they all predicted the pathogen and extraterrestrial life and the possibility is strong of this happening. And I thought these were worthless scenes. And then, but what I did like is when Hall wakes up, he's woken up to a sexy computer voice. Um, at least it it wasn't Major Barrett, but yeah. Hall seemed pretty attracted to it. Uh, but then he gets a cold dose of reality because he's being monitored constantly. So some other man voice comes on and goes, "Sir, the, you know that voice belongs to an eighty-five-year-old woman." <laughs> so uh, that's a cold shower for you, right? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> no time for love, yeah. Doctor Hall. So <laughs> then we get to the kitchen scene you talked about, and this is where Dark Stone starts to initially break de- the objectives of the study what they're going to do down. And I, I like the set. I liked this conversation. And as I mentioned, this is really your first glimpse of what the rest of the movie will be is really the scientific method. And I even liked how this kitchen scene ended is because, you know, they even still go, there's still the one decontamination process left. And I think it's cleaning out the gut. So yeah. So I like that. And you can't have sugar in the gut. And I liked some of these conversations because it is completely realistic. This is, There's a lot of truth, a lot of science that went behind the novel, the screenplay, the dialogue, and I loved it. You know, this is something I could see my asshole doctor telling me I got to do. So, um, <laughs> and so they're going through it. So it's like, fuck yeah, right? So at least it's yeah. not me. Then we get to see some cool scenes in the control room, and this is where they're going to start to expose the satellite, the open satellite, to some animals. You get to also see the mechanical arms, which is kind of cool through using through the window and things. But mm. now let's get into what, through my research, and not surprisingly, I was shocked when I first saw it as well, and I'm curious to see what you think of, is the tests on the rat and the monkey. And from mm. my research, this is the most, you Google the Andr- Andromeda strain, and this is what you're going to see. People talk about this scene. So you get the, the rat and the monkey exposed to the open satellite where obviously this pathogen is located, and they die. And you see them die which on film, but before I give you any trivia, what are your thoughts, stance, concerns? We talk about animal rights. Were you shocked when you saw this? Because yeah. this isn't this isn't just your normal animal kind of gets shot or animal just falls asleep. You can tell that they're suffering here. Yeah, very. It's very disturbing. No, no question. And it's meant to be. Well, at least I hope it's meant to be disturbing. I hope it's not meant to just be cold. And this is what happens in laboratories when they do animal testing. I think that it's more common to, to do the the testing on rats. I, I don't know that a lot of testing, at least in the Western world, happens on, on monkeys anymore. Not easy to watch. No question about that. You know, when you, you know, to go back to the opening credits, they say that the all animal activity is was supervised by the American Humane Association or whatever. It doesn't mean that it was condoned or that animals weren't harmed. It just means that they were there and watched. Yeah, essentially that's all it is. Is like, yeah, yeah we've yeah. watched it, but it doesn't yeah. mean that they didn't yeah. suffer. Yep, we supervised it, and yep, they made those animals suffer. Yeah, uh, is, I don't, yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. You couldn't do that, like you couldn't do it 
today. Like there's no way you could do it today. I, I don't know if they actually killed those animals or if they just did something else to, you know, knock them unconscious and they were fine afterwards. But if they killed them, which I mean, it's the seventies. So, you know, it's like the wild West and Hollywood, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't. Yeah, no, I, I didn't like it. I, I was not, I was, I was disturbed, but at the same time, like I understand that that is in fact how, uh, lots of tests uh, do happen. I'm surprised you didn't use the word unsettled, but that's okay. Yeah, well, I, I already <laughs> used that. I don't, I don't have any left. Yeah, you don't have any left. <laughs> well, I'm glad you have a heart, Jeff, because, uh, yes, I was also very disturbed when I initially watched this. In fact, I was so shocked with the, with the rhesus monkey death on screen that I paused the movie, and I had to go straight to Google to do the research and saying what happened here. And the what happened, according to which everyone says is true, I'm going to take them for their word, is for the monkey, is that whole room, the monkey's cage, because it was uh, was filled with oxygen, and but the entire room was in a vacuum, and mm. or uh, just filled with CO2. I can't remember which one it was. Yep. And when that they opened the cage for the monkey, he couldn't breathe, and he was suffocating. But I think it was CO2. So he passed out and he would have died, but there was a, a vet there as, as he finally passes out after six, seven seconds of suffering. Then he got there and put an oxygen mask on him and apparently the monkey was brought back to life. So, but pretty much on the verge of death there. Obviously no word on the rats and I'm going to go on the <laughs> assumption that they just let them die. Well, probably. I mean, and just thinking about how movies are where you got to do, you got to be prepared for multiple takes. Yeah. And, you know, killing a few rats, probably not a big deal, but monkeys, I'm assuming, are more expensive, so... Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that went back down to cost, yeah. Yeah. So, not surprised, I am shocked, not happy with it, and I guess that's the one benefit of CG, good CG now, is that they had to do it now, at least you get a couple of the suffering scenes would be the CG portions and not anything else, so... Yeah. So, in that respect, that's the one blessing of a good CG but yeah, I wasn't a fan of this, and this is a, a scene that's drawn much controversy, still talked about to this day, if you do the research online, and not surprised. This is one of the more controversial scenes with respect to animal rights in movies. But yeah, too bad for those those animals I felt sorry for. So I wanted to also talk to you now, because we've had, even though the movie is still probably only 40 minutes old at this point, what are your take on these characters and their relationships or lack of relationships with each other? Is this realistic because they are still strangers and they're focused on a task so is this where you want to see them at this point and or are you yearning for more well that's a good question and i think that kind of comes down it, this is where we get to the crux of my criticism of the film so first of all it is a very accurate and honest adaptation of the of the of the novel uh, which is to say that it is focused on the science and the scientific method and the and the characters are secondary to that so so the movie is being very true to the original story and then, you know as you said like this is basically you know scientific method the movie yeah so i think it's very realistic i mean there it would be very it would be realistic like maybe they would establish friendships or rivalries or whatever you know you never know what you're going to encounter when you throw people together in an isolated and stressful situation you don't know what you're going to get i think you would get a little bit more natural camaraderie between people uh, but you might not it, the thing is is it's not about it's not about them so any character work here any relationship work here would be superfluous 
in context of the story and what the story is trying to be. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of yearned for more because I, you know, I prefer character-driven stories. I, I, I think that that's a stronger way to tell stories is, is because, I, I, you know, I think stories are more compelling because of the characters, the people who inhabit them. That's why they're interesting. So when you remove that from a, from a film or from any story, then you're taking a risk because then it, it's the plot and the concept that have to fill the void right that would otherwise be occupied by the human drama so is that happening at this point you know i i mean i don't know i don't think so so yeah i kind of i kind of want a little bit more but i know that it's not missing because it's missing it's missing because they're deliberately not putting it in yes i mean it's a, it's a choice and it's a faithful they want it's a faithful adaptation of the the novel and you know you're, you're focusing so much on the analysis and the mystery and the investigation and the science and it's also semi-realistic i guess you know they are strangers and you picture yourself you're one of these people you're brought to this lab and you've got a virus that's killed so many people and it could kill so many more and you have 48 hours where the president's about to send a nuclear bomb you don't really have a lot of time to forge relationships. You got to do the work, and there's a lot of work to do, so you got to get at it. So, yeah. For that, I like the fact that they didn't try and spend a lot of time talking to each other, exposition. They would have been wasted scenes because, in the end, it goes nowhere, and the movie's not about that. But then, semi, semi important question or a related question as well is if they had put A list actors here like a Robert Redford or a Paul Newman or, or someone like that at the time, would they have brought something better or worse to this movie if they still focus solely on the science? Ooh, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. You know, Robert Redford would have been, might have been an interesting choice that might help because sometimes when you get an actor who's really, really good, even when the script is bare bones, when the dialogue is bare bones, they bring so much personality to it that it, it does help make it a little bit more compelling. There and there's plenty of instances where where that's been the case in in film, where it's been a very underwritten role, but a good actor has been able to bring more to it, so it's just more watchable. The charisma. Yeah, alone charisma, new, there'd be even a little bit of nuance that could bring a layer to a personality even if they're focused on a task yeah 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 i mean for me it's a mixed response because i would want to see those a an a-list actors focus on something like this because i think that would be an interesting film experiment actually if i wanted to do something really unique i would get very recognizable stars but they would do, they'd have nothing with respect to relationships with each other. It'd be focusing on a task in a similar manner as this. And I'd like to see that as an experimentally driven film, you know, yeah. how that would work. Because I think that's something Hollywood has not done and they should do. And I think that would be, that'd be interesting. But the problem is, is then as we talked about, you get A-list actors, they're going to say, where's my relationships? Where's my dialogue? Where's my family? I want to be the family man. I want Will Smith's going to come in and say, where's my kids? So, yeah, well, I got like Will Smith definitely, definitely say like, well, where, where are my kids? And I, I think there are actors out there who, who would be considered A-list and would do something like that and have done that. But it's extremely, extremely rare. It's extremely rare, especially now where the bigger budget movies are they're you know they're down to the the established formula you know which is fine for a lot of movies that are still very good but yeah hard to have those sort of minimalist performances from the big players mm -hmm. i agree 
Okay, moving on. See Stone and Levitt analyzing the satellite very carefully while Dutton is determining the size, uh, potential size, and how the virus is transmitted. And I loved, again, going back to the scientific method portion of it. This is, I found, is where the strength of the movie was for me because I loved how they showed all the experiments to determine the size of what it is and how, you know, even though despite they might be showing some more torture scenes of these rats and suffocating them and you get a glimpse into the kind of procedures real life scientists would use and even you see stone doesn't even want to you know skip any procedures or protocols because you see levitt trying to shortcut or fast track some of the results but this is a slow process and he keeps saying it's slow we got to take our time we got to do every single inch we can't miss anything and i thought these are great scenes here what did you think of some of these initial experiments and the concept of showing how they're determining these things well again this kind of comes like i said before kind of comes back to my Central criticism, I don't want to say criticism, it's not the right word, but I guess my central analysis of the film, which is that it feels very authentic. Mm-hmm. When the two of them are are scanning the satellite, you know, and they, uh, you know, they see the dents in there, and they're scanning closer and closer, trying to find the pathogen, and and again, where they they're they're doing the meticulous testing with the animals right it's you know they're, they're trying to find the vectors of of contamination you know can you catch from a corpse uh, you know is it airborne is it you know is it this is it that i mean all of it is very very authentic it feels it feels very authentic which mm-hmm. i appreciate it, it you know we're not it's authentic but it's not dramatic for you it's not dramatic i mean okay but that's here's the an point example. of the movie though well uh, exactly yes it that, is that's, it is a, the that's point a choice of the movie. that's a choice so so that's that's why I say that's kind of the that's sort of the tug of war that's that's going on in my person is the authenticity versus the drama. I'll, I'll give you an example where it's a total piece of shit. Okay. Sure. So my spouse likes to watch the TV show Bones, which has been on for like uh, eleven seasons, I think. Okay. And and they've done some decent character work on there. I'm not a huge fan of it myself, but it's certainly not a bad TV show. Why are you watching? Why am I watching? Yeah. Because I'm in the same household. This is this is another podcast. I, they, my wife watches that show too, and okay, I won't go through it with a go near it with I, a 10 foot I've pole. never I've never watched an entire episode start to finish, but like it's on, so like I'm aware of it, right? Uh, and because it's been on for 11 years, I certainly absorbed some. So when the show was first on, because I tried to watch it at the start because she liked it. So I'm like, I'll give it a shot. They had this technology in their office that was like a holographic projector that could reconstruct somebody's face from their bone fragments and stuff. And, you know, 10 years ago and even today, we don't have holographic projectors that can do this. So it's like it's impossible technology that they just throw in there for dramatic purposes to help move the plot along. They eventually scrap that concept. And it's the kind of thing that lots of movies do and lots of TV shows do that I fucking can't stand. Because it's... Mm-hmm. The technology doesn't exist, nor is there any real basis for it to be able to exist. And... Yeah, just, just, they're just making shit up. Yeah, exactly. And it's they're not supposed to be up. science fiction. That's right. It's not science fiction, and yet they're making it science fiction. So they're not making it about the science. Right. right? They're just making it palatable for, you know, Joe Blow primetime. So in this movie here, we don't get that. They're not making any shit up. They've got the robotic arms, which exist. Everything there is perfectly reasonable with what is possible at the time. And that is, I, I mean, I can't express my appreciation for that. That's fucking great. But I'm still watching a movie with people and a story so... 
I'm still feeling like I'm missing a vital component of having a story told to me. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the kind of the that's the tug of war that's going on with me when I when I'm watching these scenes. Okay, I hear you, and I think that's a valid criticism of this movie. But we'll talk more about that maybe at the end because that's going to be repetitive and reoccurring throughout this thing. So as Stone and Levitt find a small, tiny meteorite on the satellite, they find that uh, this greenish paint-like substance is throbbing. It must be alive. They could see it growing. And when when you start seeing it move and change color, you, you know I found these some effective scenes here with some ominous music. You know, we haven't really touched on the music, but when it does come into play, I felt it was very effective. And then the choice of not using a lot of music through the movie uh, through the movie is a very bold choice. I mean, I guess many movies from the 70s do that. And but what did you think of that? Like when you did hear the music, was it effective? I mean, I suppose so. Yeah, it didn't sway me one way or, or another, to be honest with you. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, no, fair enough. So we get next couple scenes here. So Hall, who's the main doctor, MD, he's analyzing the old man who has ulcers and looking at the baby who's still trying to figure out what's right, wrong there. And then we're intercut with some scenes of the pilot who flew over Piedmont. His mask finally disintegrates. So I guess that the pathogen was exposed. He was exposed to pathogen in some manner. And he kind of passes out his plane crashes. And then you see a black box being retrieved later. And you get some back and forth scenes in being intercut between what's happening in the lab and what's happening outside. And, you, you know, you're getting the point of view of military and the point of view of the scientists. Now, for me, I think the movie was trying. It's a weak attempt. It was trying to show, the, as I mentioned before, the conflicts and relationships here that I wish was more explored. Uh, and they dropped the ball here. And, and, and I was really hoping for some more outside influence on what was happening inside the lab. And I think that could have maybe helped you out in a sense, because then maybe you might have had some more dramatic moments and some more tension. Do you agree? Okay, so you're saying that you wanted more influence from the outside world on the events in the lab. Yeah, like I don't need to see Mm. the president sitting there having Morgan Freeman having a monologue to himself, (laughs) right? So that bastard can just go back to his stupid visa commercials because I'm sick of them. So, but I don't need to see a president or him talking to his VP and just saying, oh, well, you know, what should we do? Oh, I don't know. What should you do? Oh, we should 48 hours. Are you sure about that? And stuff like that. I kind of wanted to see more of maybe because we do find out later that Wildfire is a germ warfare base. So maybe they could have had some kind of discussions through the military and maybe president's, you know, advisors or chief of staff or, you know, security chief. And maybe they could have been doing something to kind of maybe threaten, come into wildfire and take things over, right? Just, I go back to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. It's like, every time I have dealings with Starfleet, I get nervous, you know? So, (laughs) (laughs) So I think, you know, throwing in some dialogue there, having some back and forth scenes in play through maybe something like that kind of a storyline, even though it what made it didn't need to be a focus, I think that could have maybe improved this film. See I don't know about you. Well, it's interesting that you say that. So I think what I would have enjoyed more and I don't like to rewrite movies on the fly on the show here, but yeah, fuck it. What I think would have been really interesting is we we had a true to use a Star Trek term, ship in a bottle storyline here, where we had absolutely zero contact with the outside world. Either it was completely cut off or whatever. Nothing. We don't see what's happening outside. They don't get any communication from outside. Then we get the claustrophobia. We get the tension of 
being completely isolated. They don't, you know, maybe Andromeda got loose on the surface. They don't know. They have to continue the work. But you know what? The way you're describing it, you're describing so many horror or virus movies that already exist, and many of them do. Most, I'd say, 99% of them don't work in that manner. Yeah, well, that is a trope in horror movies. That's a trope in virus or disaster flicks. That's my worry here. Well, like, I suppose I, I can. Because I can still see have to do the analysis, so you're not no, going to avoid. Yeah, that. they they still need to do the analysis, but I I, I don't know. I thought. I, and I just kind of thought of that just now as we were talking about it. I don't really want any influence from the outside world. I want the drama to come from them being in this isolated because they they make a big deal about how isolated they are, right? Mm. The decontamination protocols, them going deeper and deeper into hell, as you said, they are on their own down there. That's what we've been led to believe at this point is they are on their own down there, but it never really feels as claustrophobic as I think it should if it was, you know, we've talked about it being authentic and realistic. If it was going to really go for that, wouldn't we, if you were actually down there, no sunlight, no real food, no, you know, I don't have real clothes, you don't have real anything, no real communication with the outside world. I mean, wouldn't that start to... Bad food, brutal discipline. Yeah, bad food, no women. brutal discipline. No women. <laughs> that was the life, Will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Picard, you celibate son of a bitch. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, I think that might have been a way to go. But anyway, uh, you know, that's just that's just one man's opinion. Oh, well, yeah, where are we here? So we get a, we get a scene of Levette now studying the growth cultures, and I found this interesting because you see a whole round table which is being rotated around and uh, being examined under a microscope. You see all these cultures where, you know, a piece of the, or a pathogen or organism has been placed into these cultures in different mediums, and either she's analyzing the growth, but... We as the audience are made aware that it does not grow in an alkaline medium, but apparently she sees no growth in red lights and she becomes epileptic or just has a seizure or just phases out. And I, I didn't like this B storyline of her having epilepsy. I think that instead, if they wanted to kind of save that reveal for later, they could have just stuck with what's happening and they didn't need to have her kind of forget about it because I found it confusing. I had to rewind because I was saying, oh, did, did she notice? Did she not notice? What's going on here? So even though I think they explain it later, but I think it's just, it was a, a pointless scene for her to miss it. So then we get to the next day. Um, now, Hall is, you know, thinking about blood acidosis. That might be the key. And then they finally codename the the government codenames the the strain Andromeda. I didn't have time to get through the bulk uh, more trivia here. I had made a note, I believe, and one of I mean, I know there's the Andromeda galaxy. So maybe they just said, okay, there's a galaxy out there called Andromeda. So let's just call it that. The strain is from there. But there's also the Greek mythology. I believe the she's the daughter of some kind of Greek god, and she gets chained to a rock. That's who Andromeda is, and she's in a lot of paintings. And, and the funny thing is, is she's a beautiful a goddess who's just tr eventually, for some reason, gets chained to a rock. And I figured that's probably the influence here and why they called it Andromeda. Do you have any other information on Andromeda? My apologies for not uh, completing the research, but that's from just off the top of my head. No, I, I, I believe you're correct. I mean, obviously, the Andromeda Galaxy, which is, you know, just kind of named, well, it's named, the galaxy is named for the constellation Andromeda, because it fits inside the constellation. So that's why the galaxy gets that name. But you're, I mean, you're right. Uh, she, 
if I recall correctly. I can't remember um, what Greek god is the father or the meaning behind her being tied to a rock. I just remember seeing a bunch of paintings of her. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember her father, father, her wife. Her mother was Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia, I think, had, she was like bragging about her or something, and and that kind of, that led to her sacrifice. Like, Chain to the Rock is correct. So that's where I uh, figured, because this came in the meteor, the rock, and I'm assuming that's where the, the influence really is. I mean, that could be. I mean, Michael Crichton was a medical doctor. He, you know, obviously had extensive university education, so he probably had a, you know, a couple of Greek mythology courses that he had to take as his electives in there somewhere. So it's like, okay, well, yeah, there's a rock. Uh, she was shamed to a rock. Okay, Andromeda, you know, that's probably the extent of it for sure. I don't, again, my, my Greek mythology is a little bit rusty, so, but I, I don't think there's a whole lot more underlying the name of it. I think for the novel and for the book, it's more, you know, people are aware it's the name of a galaxy out there, or a constellations up from outer space. I think that's probably, I think that's probably the extent of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm assuming that's it too. So we get more scenes now, again, group talking to the military and the political advisors because getting the, still advising them to drop the bomb on the town. And again, I'm not, I'm not going to, don't want to talk about too much, but again, the, every time these political advisors come up, the acting is just really taking me out of the picture. I'm really struggling when I see such terrible, terrible acting. And then we get the electron microscope scene, which I really liked. And this is where they find out that it's the crystalline structure. I love the electron microscope machine. And you can, and then they find out here Andromeda can function without amino acids. And you even see it dividing in a vacuum because it's taking the energy away from just the microscope, the light. It doesn't waste any energy of any kind. And, you know, it's it's a perfect organism. You know, you have my sympathies. So um, <laughs> <laughs> they figure out at that point, the sudden realization that it doesn't waste any energy is they, they cannot drop the bomb because it'll act like a reactor and it'll divide uh, a lot and just grow expansively, probably exponentially and become massively big. So then they tell the, the president not to bomb and he doesn't. And, and then there's a couple of more scenes about this germ warfare thing, which never went really anywhere which was a major disappointment at this point in the movie for me i was hoping this is where maybe some of the tension and drama could have come into play but we've talked about that and then here we get the stakes because uh, some minor stakes have been raised here because now at this point a contamination alarm goes off and dutton is trapped in the autopsy room and and again you get the stupid little plot line of levette going into an epileptic seizure because of the red flashing lights and they pump in pure o2 into the room to slow it down because levette had previously mentioned that O2 does slow it down in terms of the cult growth culture. That Hall now gets the idea of letting Dutton rapidly breathe to simulate acidosis in his blood chemistry. And then he tells the, his assistant to get the blood pH reading of the baby. And he compares it to the old man. And one pH is too high. It's too alkaline, which is the baby one Uh, pH is too low because of the acid, because of the sterno that the guy's drinking for his ulcers. So Hall then has the solution and says, let's check the Andromeda against pH. And they find out it just only thrives in narrow pH values. So what did you think of, these are a lot of scenes that happen within the course of maybe 10 minutes here. Maybe even less. So it's a lot to absorb when you're watching the film. So what did you think of these conclusions, the way it was presented, the contamination alarm, those kind of stakes? Was there anything interesting here for you? Did you find that it helped make you enjoy the movie more? Well, okay. So I'll tackle a couple of sections here. So first, when we talk about how they sort of figure out 
how to protect themselves against the organism, which is, you know, that it survives in a narrow pH band. So either a high pH or a very low pH will retard the, the growth of the, of the organism. I actually thought that was very cool. It's a perfectly logical scientific conclusion and resolution to a very science, you know, a story that's about science. So that's, that was great. If that's, you know, if you can actually do that by, well, I assume that Michael Crichton did his research there because he's a doctor. Mm-hmm. So I'll assume there's some truth to that. I don't know. The nuclear failsafe there, which was set up earlier when they first arrived at the wild, wildfire base. And, you, you know, you knew that that was going to be a factor later on, right? If you, as, uh, as they say, you know, if you have a, if a gun shows up, it has to go off. Mm-hmm. So, but it was sort of, I didn't like that because that is a way that they just invented tension and drama. And I don't think that that was necessary. It was inconsistent with the, with sort of the drive of the film, with the tone of the film. Are we talking about when he's climbing up the ladder, getting shot no, at no, by no. lasers? So that, we're, that, not we're, we're not okay. there yet. We're not there yet. Not it there was yet? just okay. the, the narrow pH reveal because he's kind of found the solution. Yeah. In a sense, and then you just get the decontamination alarm, these kind of stakes that are happening. What's happening with Dutton? Because I, Initially, like these scenes, I love the the conclusions that Hall draws because of, of the narrow pH range, and it makes complete sense. It can't live if the pH is too high or low, and that's why you know it's so hard. You know, conditions have to be so perfect for life to exist on in any place. That's why it's yeah. so hard for scientists to even predict or find uh, you know planets and other galaxies that you know are in that Earth zone that they keep talking about. So. But what I didn't like about this whole thing is that these stakes are immediately removed because you see the live rat there near Dutton. No, I'm worried about Dutton. I'm worried about Dutton, even though you really don't care about him too much. Yeah. These aren't people, the movie's not making you care about them. It's not about that. But the stakes are gone because the uh, the thing's mutated again. Now yeah. it's benign. Yeah. So it's like, why did they go down this route? I don't get it. They could have just had him rapidly breathe, and then he was, they were worried about him passing out. I thought that could have been an interesting solution to try and solve for the dramatic stakes of the movie. And I think that's where they could have focused on. But instead, we get this useless other release, and he's got to disarm the bomb. And... You know, this laser dodging thing, which was ridiculous. I mean, let, let's talk about that. W- what did you think of the lone action scene, which I might add, started with exactly six minutes left in the movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's absurd. I mean, obviously, there's some technological limitations here. It's like, <sighs> it's stupid. It's like, okay, duck. You know, he doesn't duck. He... When he told him to duck, it's like he ducked, but then the laser doesn't even... You know, I know there's one one shot where the laser goes above his hand a little bit to, you know, the right or the left. Yep. So that was appropriate. But there was a couple of shots where it's like, duck, but it goes way wide of him. Well, it goes way wider and he doesn't duck. He like, you know, he like dodges to the side or I don't know. I hear duck, I like, you know, tuck my head in and go down. Like I don't move to the side or anything like that. It just, this is manufactured tension. Yeah. And it doesn't fit. With the film, it's just there to... Yeah, I like the concept. It's okay, but it's poorly executed is kind of where I want to go. Yeah, it is poorly executed. I don't really like the concept uh, where, you know, you have to hit the fail safe because it was... I mean, one, it was too obviously set up, you know, the start of Act 2. The only reason it's there is for us to be nervous about them not getting blown to Kingdom Come because they can't think of another dramatic conclusion. You know, like well, the, the, the Andromeda will become the super pathogen if it gets the nuclear energy. Yeah, 
But you know, but the point is that they made that up because they knew that the, the drama about them figuring out the virus and it it wasn't going to be enough for the conclusion of the storyline. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe they were right about that. But I don't know. Maybe maybe if they had done a better job of filming it, you know, it might have worked better. But I don't know. It didn't work. It didn't work for me. No, it didn't work for me either. This was the major disappointment of the film was it was the ending. And then I think they could have done something better here. And again, maybe dealing with the army's requirements for germ warfare. And I don't know. Anyways, I mean, even that's been done to death in Hollywood. Yeah, I think I think just the stakes are just not not here at this moment in the film. So the next scenes here is that because tech, it is benign, apparently, to terrestrial life now, mutated just by chance to end the movie nicely. They, and it's, I think it's moved, I think in my um, plot summary, I mistakenly said it's still in the desert area, but apparently for some reason they tracked the Piedmont gases and it's moved with the winds towards the coast. So they're going to release some silver iodide in the cloud to stimulate rain and they're assuming it'll wash into the ocean. The alkalinity of the seawater will not let it grow, will remain dormant and benign. Everything seems okay. Everyone's happy. You have a couple of media, a couple of quick two two second meetings between you know Doctor Stone and the government and a panel and saying, "Yep, yeah, it's all good." But what would you do if it happened again? Could it happen again? And that's the question. You have that ominous ending, Peter Overload. What do you do? What would we do? So Jeff, what would you do? That's my question. The end. What would you do? <laughs> Are you asking seriously? Like, what would I do? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, if this were to happen again? Yeah, no, I'm just joking. Okay. It's it's a joke. It's just an ominous. <laughs> it's a little bit of an ominous ending. You see it kind of mutate computer overload thing again. And I mean, I, I like the last shot of it doing that. But yeah, the problem here is that last this last ten minutes really didn't do it for me. So I really didn't care how it ended anyway. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a Twilight Zone ending in yeah, that respect. Sorry. That's actually a good comparison. This is a very bookend episode feel to something like a Twilight Zone or an X-Files episode. Yeah. yeah. Where everything has to reset to everything's hunky-dory again. Right, exactly. So that's the Andromeda strain, Jeff. So any thoughts now that we've gone through this? High-level thoughts, direction, writing, acting. If you could take anything away, I know you mentioned the word authentic. Is there anything else aside its scientific authenticity that is a a positive aspect of this film. Well, I don't know if it's a positive aspect of the film or a negative one necessarily. It just kind of is. It's very cold. Mm-hmm. It's very Spartan. It's very, what's well, so I don't know the word I'm looking for, but it's very hospital-like. I think cold is, is the best word. And then that, again, as I said, because I've read the novel and as I watched the film and recalled the novel very true to it, and the novel was very much about the scientific method. It was very cold. Didn't give a shit about the characters or the human drama really at all it was not about that mm-hmm. and that's which is fine like it, it wasn't about that a very and you see again to go back to the novel and the many films that have been based on michael crichton's novels you see very similar themes obviously very focused on uh, scientific concepts but in a lot of the novels it's a group of scientists or intellectuals who are brought together from disparate places in order to solve a problem using science Mm-hmm. Jurassic Park, Sphere, Congo. Well, I actually, mean, why don't you? I, I was going to bring this up. I think the next, the proper comparison is Robert Wise to Robert Wise, the Andromeda strain to Star Trek the motion picture. You know what? Uh, very much correct. I think you're right. A 
a thinking man's problem solved by thinking thinking men and women. And I think you're I think you're absolutely right there. Except that in Star Trek the Motion Picture, the character drama is yeah, relevant and exactly. explored. And that's where I was going with it is because yeah. that's the, the really the apples and oranges. Like they're apples and apples kind of movie and it's apples and oranges and it's it's curious that it's it's an interesting comparison because it's the same director. Yeah, because and you, you have the character see. relationships there and I think you have the proper stakes a little yeah. bit more than you do here. And I think it's a more interesting story and a more interesting mystery that Star Trek the Motion Picture works. It's, you know, levels beyond what this movie is. But it's well, also absolutely. a different beast. It, it is a different beast, but you can see how the addition of the human drama, the characters helps elevate the stakes so that the problem feels more relevant. In, in Star Trek The Motion Picture, it's only because of the relationship between Kirk, Spock, McCoy, the, the dynamic on the Enterprise where they displace Decker. I mean, I could go on, right? But all of that helps make the mystery of V'ger and the stakes mean something, right? In the Andromeda strain, I mean, it might just as well be a bunch of robots fighting a virus. Like, well, yeah, so what? <laughs> You know, like, all right, we got out. Is it going to kill that? Is it going to kill that old guy? No, he's going to hyperventilate. Somebody <laughs> it, maybe a... it'd be interesting if it was a bunch of Brent Spiners walking around, right? A bunch of Brent Spiners walking. It'd be like Independence Day. <laughs> the long hair and shit. Yeah, yeah. No, I was thinking more of a bunch of Datas, but yeah, we got that oh, yeah. with Nemesis. So I know where that went. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe it'd be more comical. It's a bunch of B4s trying to solve, figure out this thing. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no anyways i agree with you for on high level first gut reaction when you watch this movie it's like i don't care about these characters the stakes aren't there the science is interesting the process is interesting but it's not enough for me to be you know hold my interest but you know i don't want to you know maybe we can go right into our final thoughts anyways whether we recommend this or it's a or it's a rare antiquity i do recommend this film still because it is so unique. And I do think it's a rare antiquity because of that uniqueness. But it's not a overly strong recommend. It's a medium recommend because there are relationship problems here. There is a connectivity problem between the average film goer and this movie. A lot of people will turn it off after 20 minutes. They'll lose interest. There are a couple of points that are struggle to get through. And even if it is unique in its concept about the science and focusing in on the science, I didn't like the acting, the B storyline stuff. You know, we could have shaved off 10 minutes of this movie, and I think that would have helped. I also really, the only two of the scientists I really liked was really only Dutton and Hall. Stone was just, you know, he was right and he was an okay leader and kept everybody focused, but he had no personality. I mean, none of them really did. I think the only one who really had any personality was Hall and a tiny bit Dutton. I think that's probably why you latch onto them a little bit more. But I still think it's a recommendation, even though it's a mild one. But it definitely is a rare antiquity because there's nothing else like it that I can recall seeing. How about yourself? I don't know. I guess if I have to look back on the film, I, it's kind of dull. Like, it's kind of boring. And there there isn't any human drama. There aren't any human relationships. I I think that they made the movie. I think, I think Robert Wise made the movie that he was trying to make. I don't think he made any mistakes in the sense uh, of what his game plan was here. Because the novel itself was very cold. It wasn't about people. It was about science. It was about the scientific method. So... In that sense, it's a success. 
we're going to talk about rare antiquities or recommendation. I can't really recommend it. I don't think it's there's no entertainment here. I'm not entertained by this. I appreciate the cerebral take on a problem. I think it's very admirable that they went for the science as opposed to an action solution, even though there was sort of the action sequence of six minutes to go, as you said, but not enough here. I think that stories that by their nature need characters that make the story relevant. If there aren't good characters to make the story relevant, then the story is not relevant. It doesn't matter. I don't recommend it. Is it a rare antiquity? I, I don't know. I mean, I agree with you. There isn't anything else like it. They certainly don't make movies like this nowadays, and they maybe should take a few cues from it, but I'm going to I'm gonna say no. It's not a rare antiquity. I'm not going to recommend it. Hard for me to say it, but... No, that's, that, that's okay. That's good. Uh, you know, we've, as we discussed recently, we've agreed one too many times on this show. So it's refreshing yeah. that we actually have different opinions here. Yeah. Any other thoughts on the Andromeda strain? Because that's pretty much it from my end here. No, I don't think I have any other thoughts on it. I mean, it, I think there's a, I, there, I mean, there's a, there is a lot to like here. And, and I hope that, I hope to see certain concepts like this revisited in future films. Yeah, that's about it. It's a cool idea, but I'm happy to, to move on from this one. Okay, well, that does it for today's episode, episode 23, The Andromeda Strain. Jeff, care to enlighten everybody what your pick is next? Yeah, for sure. So inspired by your pick of The Andromeda Strain, we are going to the 70s again from a very famous director also based on a novel. We are going to Robert Altman's 1973 adaptation of The Long Goodbye. Oh, interesting. I've always wanted to see that film. All right. Should be a good ride. I am actually reading the novel in preparation for the episode, so here's hoping it's not a big, fat waste of time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and not too long of a wait. We'll see. Yeah, Yeah, it'll be another timely episode. (laughs) Anyways, Jeff, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure, and I'll see you again next time. All right, man. Take it easy. (laughs) 